listening to Nightcallers Bigfoot Radio. Good evening and welcome to Nightcallers Bigfoot Radio. You're here with your host, Lauren Smith. And tonight is the first night of the new Nightcallers. Um, and tonight we have Marvin Leeper on. He's going to be joining us. How are you doing, Marvin? Um, hold on. You are muted and I don't know why. There you are. <laughs> okay. We have to have some glitches the first night or else it just doesn't, that's, it's just bad luck, I swear. Um, so how are you doing tonight? Doing great. Looking forward to this. First time I've ever done it, kind of underwhelmed, I guess. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to freeze, but now I don't. I don't think so. I think I'm gonna be fine. That's all right. I'm I'm feeling the same way. Um, so it's this is my first time doing this live video as well. So don't feel weird. Um, we're just gonna talk about you, talk about your book, talk about your experiences, um, and then talk about the Boggy Bottom Bigfoot Conference. So no pressure. No pressure. You're a teacher. You talk. You talk in front of just you know however many students all the time and you do it over zoom chat so it's not a big deal right it's, it's fine so where do we start so <laughs> we're gonna start so marvin leeper is a professor of folklore at murray state college in tishmingo oklahoma so i kind of, so if you if you don't know he wrote a chapter in the book wood knocks volume three and that book is put together by david weatherly you guys go check it out the amazon link is in the description down below um his chapter is the longest chapter in that book and it is really really good so i read it i could not put it down um as i was reading it i was writing out questions to talk about on the show uh, i have two pages of questions so and i already informed him so he's he's well aware that i have questions so <clears throat> you became a professor of folklore at the college. So I kind of want you to tell me about the journey that you went through to get to be the professor of folklore, because that's not a typical class that you're going to see. Well, actually, my fascination with all sorts of legends and tales began in my boyhood there in the Standing Rock community, which is, I might add, only about 10 miles south as the crow flies from Colgate High School, where the conference will be. Uh, I, my family had land on the Clear Boggy Creek, and there were various sightings and stories told of these things, and, and several stories entailed a female with a baby in tow or on her head. And different people in the community, which was largely composed of, you know, outdoorsmen and hunters, people who would know what's in the woods, uh, dealt with this topic. And I was, I was fascinated with it. I, I had no reason to believe that it was not true. And then uh, the towering moment, I suppose, uh, I do in the book talk about several of the incidents there during my childhood. Uh, the the moment that really solidified my interest in Bigfoot per se was the legend of Boggy Creek. And when that movie came out, all the kids in school were going, I can't believe they made a movie about us, you know? So we're thinking it's about us and it's about Falk, Arkansas. Well, when we found out it was about Arkansas, that was okay too, you know, because everybody's got relatives in Arkansas. Right. So we went to that movie and saw that. And uh, I told you a, an amusing anecdote concerning Matthew Mungle, who went on to become a, an Academy Award-winning uh, makeup artist mm -hmm. for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. And he lived just a few miles down the road in Tushka, and he and I would get together and watch these old monster movies and play with makeup and effects. And by the time The Legend of Augie Creek rolled around, he was a few years older than I, and he constructed an eight-foot reddish-brown suit with the glowing red eyes. So he came bursting into the exit door and that entire section of the theater just exploded, you know. Ah, and he did it right when the arm comes through the window. And then they played the screen, you know. And it was total freaking chaos. And I thought right then, yeah, Bigfoot's pretty cool. I like this stuff. So I monitored the situation, you know, as best I could. And as a child, I'd seen the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. I was totally fascinated by that. 
read accounts in the newspaper of the Lake Worth monster. So yeah, it was it was happening in the seventies. You know, there was the Peter Graves movie, several other low budget movies, and they would make big events of these in the token. They would show one night and one night only, lines around the block, and you'd have to you know hustle your way into the theater get a seat. And a lot of times we didn't. And uh, there was one particular one called Bigfoot. I believe it was Man or Beast, a documentary about the Pacific Northwest. After that, yeah, I was hooked. It, it was just, you know, can't turn the clock back now. I got to grow up as soon as I can and find this thing. Right. So whenever yeah. you um, brought up uh, starting a folklore class at the college, um, I know mm -hmm. that it was not easy. I know that that was not, um, I think in the book that you mentioned that it had been 20 years. It had been in the course catalog, but it had been inactive in the course catalog. Yes until you brought it up. So you went around to teachers, you went around to students and you got their feedback on whether they would want that. And if they did want that class, what would they want it to be about? Um, so in the book, you wrote that you researched the research. So can you tell me kind of what did that entail? Well, I had, there were two trains of thought on researching the research. The first was for validity because it is a college course. And the second was from points of view that I was not familiar with related directly to the study of folklore, as it's called folk study. And the Bigfoot thing was kind of overwhelmingly uh, addressed by the students. Look, we want to we hear about crybaby bridges. We want to hear about phenomenon UFOs and Bigfoot. And I thought, how, you know, how am I going to do that? How am I going to make that fit in a college curriculum? Mm -hmm. And I got Bertrand's book on folk study read it and found that curiously enough, Bigfoot better than any other paranormal or uh, UFO study fit because of the three main study methodologies, which of course the oral tradition, the materialistic and the ritualistic. So uh, the stories have existed for hundreds of years in this area. The materialistic thing could be like the uh, footprints, you know, they're tangible, we can touch them. And then the customary, like think, for instance, the Bukwas in the Pacific Northwest, the dances and rituals that are entailed there. So I found that, yeah, it does fit. Remarkably, it fit very well. So that was my selling point with my department chair who went through the vice president, you know, and yeah. board of regents. And after 20 years, the folklore lab, uh, class came back to life. And what would you say, was it an overwhelming response or was it just a few trickled in? In those classes, there have to be 10 students for the class to make. Okay. Okay. In the first semester, we barely got those 10 students. I think we had 12. And by the time I stepped down and turned it over to another professor, they were lined up for semesters to try to get in. It nice. was built at capacity. So yeah, in my tenure, it, it really grew. Right, I know and that, I was, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I know that you learned a lot from those classes. As much as you taught, I know you learned also from the students that you gained knowledge, Absolutely. which we'll, we'll cover we'll later talk. a few things that you learned, right. but. Yeah. Um, There's some good stuff. Yeah, they're definitely, and like I said before, you guys buy the book. Um, so I'm gonna cover a lot of what Marvin has written about in that chapter. Um, but there's a lot that I am not gonna cover in this interview, and so I advise you to go buy that book. It is well worth it um, for the rest of the chapters as well as his, um, very well written. Okay, so um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was that you went and you interviewed different Native American um, people in the community to get a lot of the background for this book and a lot for your class as well. Um, so some of the Native American tales, I mean, they, they really stuck out to me. So the Native American tales of the Caddoan giant of the forest, that one, that was a big one that you had in there. Um, so this predates the Choctaw version of Champagne about, by about 250 years, at least in Oklahoma. Um, so what can you tell me about the Caddoan giant? of the forest. Well, the Catawan giant, the, the pronunciation of the name is, is under debate because of some of the syllabic additions, I'll just mm -hmm. say. So I won't try to butcher that particular <laughs> name, which they held in reverence. 
but uh, there were multiple manifestations of uh, that individual creature. In one, he was horned. In another, he was uh, serpentine. But in most of them, he was the large, hairy, bigfoot-like creature we've come to know, with one exception that's very, if you'll pardon the pun, not very palatable. He was cannibalistic. Mm -hmm. And he was, one of the more famous uh, tales has to do with one of these creatures stalking a pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the rest is you can leave to your imagination. But they definitely did not see him as one of the friendly forest giants. Right. And I found a lot of the uh, Native American folklore from the older, older lore, the, uh, the creature wasn't something that you wanted to invite home for supper. Yes, a lot you mentioned in here and then a lot of the um, encounters that I've heard, a lot of the stories I've heard from Native American um, lore is that they're malicious, they're violent, and they prey upon women, children, Indeed. pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly like you said. Um, another thing that you brought up about the Native American lore was um, that you covered um, their journey along the Trail of Tears. And mm -hmm. one of the things you said just, I mean, it just jumped out at me. It was so great. You said, rather than a loss of culture or tradition, um, their oral tradition grew and they retained their culture along the Trail of Tears because, you know, of this. Uh, well, they were, they were Go ahead. sociologically forced to retain their culture on the Trail of Tears. The removals were extremely brutal, extremely hard. And uh, the dominant civilization had sought to impose their own European religious values upon them uh, rather forcibly in some cases. So by very necessity, they uh, they retained their oral tradition and their stories grew. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a slight schism between the Mississippi Choctaws and the Oklahoma Choctaws and some of that lore, but that's understandable because of the change in geographics. And as you know, because I was surprised and delighted to learn that you know quite a lot about folklore, Native American folklore, <laughs> that uh, a lot of their folklore is tied to the earth itself. Mm -hmm. And when they came here, they were in a different geographical environment. So their lore had to adapt and change, but it kept the major characteristics. Right. Right. Um, so uh, just going off of that. So in the book, you also mentioned that there is uh, folklore and then there's fake lore, which fake lore, as you described, I will read it word for word, is... Um, Imitation folklore attributed to a group that never had it. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yes. Um, well, so you said the Bigfoot yeah. Human War of 1855, to be specific. But um, there's so many other accounts of fake lore, exactly like you said, that um, it's a story or folklore that we've heard that's been adapted to the area that it's being told in. And it's not necessarily originating from that area. Yeah, it's transposed. Those tales become transposed to different areas. In the case of the uh, thing mentioned, I went to the Choctaw Genealogical and Census Bureau and was fortunate enough to find a very uh, participating young lady named Gwen Takeshorse who actually went back through the census to the date of removal to research those names that appear in that story. And all those people most of those people actually lived at one time or another, but not in 1855. And then I did some further research, and it's, it is transposed on another legend, which we'll go into at a different time. But it's, it's equally remarkable, let me just say that. Right. Um, I know that you mentioned La Flore, the tale of La Flore. Um, if you want to tell about that. Well, that is an archetypal folk tale that I have heard from different uh, regions, different tribes, and it's always, they will transpose, of course, their own people into the tales. But in this particular tale, uh, I believe John Harold may know of a similar tale involving another person. There's always a hero, a heroic figure who is of gigantic stature. You know, think Hercules. Mm -hmm. because he or she is faced with undaunting tasks that the normal person couldn't live up to. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And they're always, always, uh, their adversaries are usually a creature or a man beast or something of equal physical prowess and cunning and intellect. Think Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, this individual was found to be stealing corn from the cribs. And in this particular story, the hero figure waits for him and confronts him. He's as big as, as the Sasquatch creature. They go into this legendary uh, test of manhood, I guess you could say, slapping each other on top of the head, mm-hmm. trying to short one another in stature, you know. And then the story goes on. It becomes quite comical at times. But it was comical. It's, on, it's, a, it's a morality play, which is one of the types of uh, folk studies, you know. If you steal, this is going to happen to you. So uh, I believe I finished that section up by saying that uh, – Champagne slunk back into the darkness several inches shorter than before, something to that effect. Yes. And that's exactly, you know, what, what's passed down in the oral tradition. And, you know, you've noted oral tradition is kind of like telling the kid in the front row a story who tells the next kid. Mm-hmm. It changes mm-hmm. by its very nature, not being recorded. It's the telephone well, game. That, Absolutely. Yes. I yes. found that and in the um, in the Bigfoot community as well as, you know, oral tradition, but in the Bigfoot community, even if you say something to someone, by the time it gets back to you, it's nothing remotely like what you said. That's human nature. It's human nature, which is why it's great that we have these technical technological advances like uh, recording devices and such to capture um, our accounts right now so that they stay true to the nature of what we are discussing and not uh, <laughs> not get too, you know... Um, right. Um, okay. So I wanted to go on to, um, something that you wrote about the goat man and the goat man. The, um, the, I think we decided that it was Kadia. This Kadia, the, the C, I don't know. Um, so we discussed that the beasts um, a lot in uh, the Goatman situation, so Fort Worth, Denton, and also the mm. Deer Man of Oklahoma. We discussed that both of those were depicted as having horns or, you know, um, adornments. And so we discussed that. And you had discussed in your book how this could either be an adornment worn, like a headdress, or it could, you know, possibly even be a kill that they had over their shoulders. But I wanted to kind of discuss the goat man and, and deer, the deer man of Randolph Bottoms and how you came across that information, because I think that's interesting. Well, the goat man information, of course, like I say, uh, in my childhood, I knew about the Lake Worth monster. Mm-hmm. And he was originally des- described as a goat man. And then later on, there was a photograph of a white Sasquatch-like creature uh, released. And then in the Decatur or Denton area, Jeff Stewart had written about these horned Bigfoots. And I found that absolutely fascinating because the dear man of Randolph Bottom, whom I had first heard about from uh, Dr. Darren Tishamingo and Derek Collins, and since then I've found several other interesting tales. So we decided we'd go to Randolph Bottoms, John Harold, Jerry Hestan, and uh, see Lyle Blackburn, some other folks and started becoming acquainted with the area. And since then, uh, Michael Waldy, you know, has done a lot of research there. He has. And the Deer Man stories were substantiated, believe it or not, by students in the folklore class again. Uh, We had mentioned it in class and I said, we should probably look for more information on this. And she said, well, I've got a story to tell right now. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, her uncles a few years ago had been down in the bottom. There's a swamp, there's huge swamps. And the railroad tracks on a raised levee that goes through the bottom. And this thing had walked up on the railroad track and they didn't know if it had horns or if it had a deer draped across its mm-hmm. back. You know, and I thought, hmm, that got me thinking about the horned goat man thing. And the Jeff Stewart chapter in what was it, volume two? of Woodnocks, mm-hmm. and then I started listening more often than not, and uh, two things hit me that I did not discuss in the book that I haven't talked about, but if it's a misinterpretation of people who are viewing this creature with a kill across its shoulders and it appears to have horns, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. That's one thing, and it's pretty self-evident what that is. But if it were the other, if these animals were actually taking the horns of their kills and making adornments out of them and wearing them, that would suggest a much higher level of intelligence. Yes. Than yes. what previously, you know, we've given to them. So. Much more sentient when they start oh, decorating and yeah. celebrating their kills. Absolutely. And that's very reminiscent of uh, ancient man. But we'll never know. Yes. Well, maybe we will. I know. We... We can't, we can't really speculate, but I mean, kind of, that's all we can do for right now. We don't really have any um, evidence to support whether they wear their kills or carry their, I mean, we know they carry their kills, but whether it was carrying their kills. Um, so, I mean, I think that if it does adorn itself with uh, horns or furs or anything like that, it would um, definitely be more sentient, more intelligent than we uh, give credit for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that occurred to me after we first talked about this. Yeah, I do remember so that. Re revisiting, revisiting old information can be beneficial. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to talk to you about that the other night, but I decided I'd save it for the show and then go into it then. Um, you know, people always okay. ask me, they always ask, well, you know, it's just an animal. It's just flesh and blood. And I'm, I always say, yes, it, it's definitely flesh and blood. I do believe it's flesh and blood. However... I do believe it has to be more sentient, sentient than most people give it credit for because it's elusive. If it stays hidden yeah. from us with all of our technology and all of our people out in the woods, if it stays elusive from us, it has to be highly intelligent. I agree. Absolutely agree. I, I'm still partial to the Gigantopithecus theory, but mm -hmm. who knows what centuries of evolution and the in introduction is we know giganto was largely a plant eater mm -hmm. and in a new geographical environment any animal is going to have to change its diet right from what's available and when they came if this theory is correct and they crossed the bering land strait came into america with the bering climate changes they would have to introduce meat into their diet i would right. think to survive and enzymes from the meat or what feed the cognitive areas of the brain. Right. So yeah, I mean, there's a scientific correlation there, I would think. Definitely, and as the eras progressed, um, you know, becoming shorter and smaller, I mean, not too much smaller, but becoming um, more able to blend in because man had progressed its weapons over the era and, you know, had, mm -hmm. you know, were able to take these things out with bigger weapons, more technology, all of that. Um, they became smaller and more easily able to hide. I mean, 12 foot and up is still huge, but um, I've, I've heard st uh, stories about these things being much, much larger than that, and it'd be much harder to hide that size. So adapting um, biologically as well in that aspect. Um, okay, so I wanted to go over the boggy bottom wild man, and I'm okay, going to let you... Well, I was going to let you pick what you wanted to talk about. So the Boggy Bottom Wild Man is the bulk of the chapter that you wrote. And mm -hmm. um, so I'll let you talk about uh, whichever is your favorite part of that. And then I'll let everyone um, buy the book and read about the rest because it's really good. Um, and there's a lot to okay. choose from. Well, one thing that I'd like to point out that again, you know, I really hadn't paid that much attention to as I had written the chapter, the significance of it, obviously paid attention to it or I wouldn't have added it. But in the 50s and early 60s, there were two sightings and each involved a female with an offspring. In the first sighting, uh, a group of young men were unable to make it to town that night, so they thought they would go raccoon hunting. So they did, and the dogs would go no further. Smoky Crabtree told me one time years ago that hounds were pretty useless. And they said that they were absolutely astonished that these dogs, which were fearless, wouldn't go. So in coon hunting, when they do it, each time they send the dogs out, they call it a cast. Mm -hmm. So first cast, the dogs came back, and they, they sent them out again, and this time followed them as far as they would go, which was up to the creek. And across the creek in their lamps, they could see uh, this individual was black, I believe, with a, an, what do you call it, a juvenile on its hip. And they couldn't estimate the size, but they said it looked awfully small. And uh, 
one was telling the story and he said, they said, how do you know it was a female? And he said, well, you know, and he said, well, no, I don't. And he said, well, you know, and he said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, where'd the baby get its supper? And he thought, <laughs> oh yeah, now I know. So that occurred. And then four or five years later, a farmer went into his barn one morning, right at daylight. He heard the back barn door slam. And when he was going to the back of the barn, the hay was busted. He said it smelled horrible. And he opened the door to see one going down the hill with about a four foot tall deer mile trailing behind him. So that suggests a breeding population. And the uh, sightings and encounters that I and Privy to, you know, have had firsthand information from uh, started in about 1929 and continue to this day. So they're, they're cyclical. It seems that they start around the middle of September and will carry until we hit, we hit the uh, triple digits, you know. Right. And then it's just a dead zone there for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. But the uh, Boggy Depot, Boggy Bottom area there and that little community Standing Rock have been long noted for just literally dozens. Uh, most of them have a lot of substantiality to them, but some of them get get out there a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. And this one farmer called me and he said, Bigfoot's down there tearing the tails off of my cattle. And I said, good God, that's horrible. Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, it's probably not true, but it, if it were true, it would be horrible. Right. So I said, well, I'll just come right on down there and we'll check that out. And when I got down there, I saw tons of wild fescue. You know what that is? That's a grass yes. that contains microbes that set up a fungal infection in cattle and cause their tails to slough off. Okay. See, I didn't know that part of. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably, that gentleman was probably not having Bigfoots, you know, in sporting competition on Saturday nights pulling tails off. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, probably that's... died that's a nice version of what I've heard they pull the tails off for. So, um, yeah, I, I've heard that other version as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's now, you know, and I, I don't, yeah, it is the country. It, it is. But. Um, so I wanted to get into, um, if, if you have anything else to add on the boggy bottom wild man, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Well, the, the, the Boggy Bottom Wild Man thing, the, the origin story, my origin story, was in 1929, but the origin of it's unknown. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Choctaw removals were around the 1820s and 1830s, and that's when a lot of the stories began filtering out, you know. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Choctaws, one, had multiple origin stories about Bigfoot in Oklahoma, and one of them is interesting there was a shaman called a hoyotubby which translates to woman killer and the hoyotubby was supposedly ruthless and very machiavellian he would try to influence the courts with his power you know mm -hmm. when they got here he supposedly had bigfoot uh, in captivity the champagne in captivity and would use it to seek revenge on those he didn't like so that particular era from reconstruction on is filled with those types of tales but the 1929 tale was the one that really captured my fancy because it ties in with uh, something Smokey Crabtree told me and there was a lady with a, about a four-year-old daughter and she went down on the creek to dig wild onions in the spring and the little girl started screaming and she looked up you know it's a little early for snakes but maybe it's a snake and ran to the child did not look across the creek until the child pointed across the creek mm -hmm. and at that time she turned and saw one of these creatures with a stick in its hand kneeling down poking the stick in around these wild onions and it stood up dropped the stick and she grabbed the child and ran naturally but the striking part of that encounter two points one to wild onions which we'll revisit in a second with the Smoky Crabtree story. But she said that she ran until she was totally exhausted and stopped running, expecting for this thing to catch up to them and kill them. 
and she was quite surprised to find that it stopped as well. And when she would run, it would run. And when she would stop, it would stop. And she gained access to the cabin, got inside, locked the doors, and it circled the uh, cabin, beating on the wall with the flat of its hand until well after dusk. And then her husband came home from the fields. And they formed an impromptu search party and found some tracks and followed it down to the confluence of Boggy Creek, and that's where they lost it. So talking to Smokey Crabtree several years ago about this area, and he was familiar with this area. And uh, he told me, he says, yeah, there's something about them things and them damn onions. And I said, why? And he said, they'll just go through your garden and pick onions and bite the tops off of them and leave the greens. And I said, really? And he said, as far as using a stick, I don't know. Well, the stick, let's think about that for a few moments. It's not uncommon for lower primates to use a tool, but to make a tool is quite another subject right. and would also indicate higher intelligence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because tool making is part of one of the prerequisites that philosophers tell us uh, make us human. So I found the 1929 story absolutely captivating. And a lot of these stories revolve around habitat and nutrition, diet. So uh, in about that time in the, in the Depression era, there was a school bus driver who was crossing Boggy, and he said they could see the Boggy Bottom Wild Man, which everybody was familiar with, down in the creek, and it looked like he had his rocks gathered up under his you know, in these arms. And they would think, well, what, you know, what is this thing doing with these rocks? And I was talking to that individual's grandson one day, and he said, well, hell, let's just go down there. And I said, well, why don't we? So we did. Mm -hmm. And I was astounded to find muscles, tons of muscles. And if you had an armful of muscles, mm -hmm. it would look like from up on the bridge, you had an armful of rocks. So onions, mussels, you know, we're, we're beginning to see this uh, thing presenting itself as an omnivore. Mm -hmm. I believe that it eats what's available. Right. Absolutely. Um, did, oh, I guess he didn't go investigate whether he found that they had cracked the mussels open um, with their hands or with rocks, or have you ever found any evidence of that? And, you know, that's really hard to say because there are other animals that do that, that are able to, uh, otters, raccoons, mm -hmm. you know, to right. open them usually with rocks. Right. But, you know, who can say what open? That's speculation. That's true. That's too far out to say. That's true. That's true. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you about, you do talk about this at the very end of your chapter, by the way, <laughs> so um, you saved the best for last. If you could tell me about your experience in 1976, I believe. Ooh, buddy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll try to be as uh, user-friendly as I can. You can that say what like, you were doing when it happened. I mean, this is, okay. it's a family-friendly channel, but it's, we're adults. We, we know. <laughs> if you know anything at all about the South, you know that teenage boys will go two stalls down when they go into the restroom. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you do if you're a teenage boy in this part of the world back then, at least. <clears throat> So we're going down the road one night, freezing cold, and our deal was when we got to Boggy Bridge, we would stop and each get out and go to the opposite sides of the bridge and total anonymity to perform a certain mm -hmm. bodily function. Well, the character that I was riding around with that Saturday night was an unscrupulous devil and parked closer to his side of the bridge, so I'd have to walk. So he began to initiate, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. and uh, I hadn't got over to my side to begin yet, and the woods just exploded on his side, which was on the south side of the body. And uh, the most god-awful sounds, you know, just hollering, screaming, whistling, and it looked to be 12, 15 feet up from the shoreline up in the trees. So trees were rattling, stuff's being thrown back at the bridge, and it's going downstream with this cacophony of just insane screams so fast forward 
40 years of sitting in my office and somebody sent me a link of, uh, I believe it might have been the Sierra Sounds. I'm not really sure what it was, but there were six particular recordings on here. I go through the first five and I'm going, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's very cool. And the sixth and last one was the Samurai Chatter. Mm. Well, I, I really didn't know what the Samurai Chatter was until I turned that on. And then it was just like, whoa, that's exactly what we heard in 1976. So coupled on, you know, that was not long after uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek movie. And when you had that up with the stories I'd heard all my life, it was just like, wow. And I had an encounter in 1976. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty insane. I mean, I I have heard a lot of experiences um, that follow, they parallel that. Um, and people, you know, they write them off and they say, no, 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 that's not what it was. But then they hear something later and that's exactly what it was. Or um, they hadn't told anybody until I brought up, you know, this topic and stuff like that. So that was a good well, encounter. I absolutely had no intention of telling anybody back then, but the time we made it to school Monday, everybody knew. So I thought, gosh, right. Um, okay. So I also wanted to talk about, um, we'll go ahead and go with the waterways. Uh, they always follow oh. the creeks, but I know that yeah, the waterways. The creeks. That's just one <laughs> of the most quoted uh, lines from that movie. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. Okay. But it, it's it's take, but, poignant. It's it's very it's the most important line, really. And I'll I will take a deep breath. Yes. Because this time was as long as I am old. Take a drink of water. Correlations to annual rainfall totals, waterways, human population densities, and black bear habitats. Zones by Daryl Collier and Alton Higgins, absolutely on woodape.org. If you want to read the paper in its entirety, goes into some great detail to correlate wood ape sightings to waterways. Mm -hmm. And one of the most recent uh, and best sightings there in that area that I've talked about in the book was three years ago. And the largest uh, freshwater reservoir in southeast Oklahoma is there. It's about 40 acres. And I like to sit on the dam. If you see the eagles fish, it's very serene and beautiful. And uh, the man who owns that, his father and his son were camped out there. And uh, they said they got up about daylight and they were standing on the dam watching the eagles fish. And the boy had turned around and he said, what's that? And they all three, you know, the other two turned around and said that this thing came out of the headwaters of uh, Big Sandy Creek, which is the creek that a lot of this stuff has happened on. It's another tributary of Boggy. And they said this thing was seven, eight feet tall, very darkly colored, glistening, he said, in the early morning sunlight. And he said it walked across an expanse that was probably five or six acres, just walked. But he said it moved as fast as a rabbit runs. And the thing was just walking. And that to me was amazing. And if you mm -hmm. think about it, the Watson Creek sightings, the sightings of the first sightings of the juvenile were on Boggy Creek, the sightings of the animal with the muscles in its arms were on Boggy Creek. Most of the sightings in this area, there was a hair sample taken up in Cole County on what they call Canyon Boggy. Mm -hmm. And most of the sightings are, as uh, Collier and Higgins point out in their article, on or near waterways. And I found that an interesting tie-in to the legend of Boggy Creek. That's why I just had to do that. You know? Definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, I mean, um, any time that I try to pick a new research area, I find um, I go through the topo, I go geographical satellite image, I go find waterways and mm -hmm. um, heavily wooded areas usually, but mostly waterways. Um, I mean, if you think about it, that's where their water is. That's where their food sources go. Um, so that's, I mean, it's very accurate. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk about <clears throat> the very last part here, um, go into the trackway, the 29 foot trackway that was found. Um, so. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to 
No, it's okay. Was that, um, were you with John Harrell when that happened or was that? Yes. Okay. Well, that, that was on the site that in 1976 I had that previous experience. Right. That itself was enough impetus to go there. But the time lapse had been so great that I had no idea it was lightning to strike twice. If you right. What prompted me to go to that area again was the discovery of a 21-inch footprint about two miles from the bridge okay. down the tributary creek. And I had examined that print and several other interested parties examined the print. It's just originated uh, someday I hope to be able to to present that, but right. there was a psychologist that found it, and for fear of, uh, you know, being ostracized, she decided to keep it under wraps, so to speak. I can respect that. Understand. But with that having happened, I thought, we need to go back to checking our, our bridge spots, our creek spots, and pulled up there. Uh, John and I sat and picked up for a minute. We, we do that when we pull up, like to sit quietly with the lights and everything off. 15, 20 minutes, whatever. And let the woods kind of settle down. Things get used to you being back in there and uh, got out. I said, this little road goes right down to the banks of Baltimore, John. John had a good light. He took off. And uh, he's sitting right here. Well, he asked him real quick, how long had you, how far had you walked from the truck when you found that first truck? Uh, probably maybe 25 feet, maybe. Yeah. Did you hear that? Mm-mm. He was. He said he had walked no further than 25 feet from the pickup when we found the first one. And it was the best one. It's the one that's pictured in the book. And uh, there were in total, I believe, nine castable tracks. That was absolutely the best. But it went from a little side trail down the creek and then down the middle of a roadway where fishermen would pull up. And each side of the raised area were the tracks where the cars would go. And that was just insane muddy, like up to your knees muddy. Mm-hmm. So I think it had been trying to skirt the really muddy part. And they went right up to a fence and there was grass supposedly across the fence. Uh, and that's not unsimilar of a situation that happened the first day of July. Well, it's the first night of July, July 1st, 11 p.m. this year. A man called me from that area and said he had just seen the thing crossing the road. And we went down there the next day and we found the grave trust with it raining at that time. And until it got to the roadway, he said that, that it took like two steps to clear that road and stepped over the fence. And we could see when it stepped over into the grassy area, you know, the tracks just disappeared. Those were the experiences of ones John. Right. Um, so we have a question from Rob Richmond in the chat, and he said, um, that size print, what height would that correlate to, would you think? Well, you know, that size print, what height would that correlate to? Are we talking about the 21-inch track? Yes, sir. Okay, that would be about 11 feet and 3 inches. But to, to give you an idea of foot-to-height ratio, when I was a, a student athlete in high school, there was a boy who played on the basketball team and the baseball team wore a size 12 shoe and was 5 foot 7. Yeah. I don't really think that track size and height or can be directly poor that's true i think um sorry uh personally i think it's geographic location it's what kind of terrain they're going over um you know if they're climbing rocks if they're going over mud um sandy areas i think their bodies would be adapted to that area in this area where it's very marshy i think a broader foot would be beneficial i think so too uh, the average track in this part of the world is around 14 or 15 years. Okay. So that would be an extremely large animal. Definitely. Um, I have included the trackway picture in the slideshow, as, as you all can see. Um, there's a picture of the actual track in the book, um, so you can um, view that in the book if you buy it. 
Um, so we had a couple other questions from the chat real quick I wanted to get into. Um, so Mr. Duffy 81 asked, have you ever, so this is about your personal research. So have you ever found any ground glyphs, stick art or fake fire pits? I've never seen or heard of a fake fire pit. Uh, ground glyphs can be caused by so many different things. Yes, I You agree. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I have seen uh, on two or three separate occasions what I would call, if for lack of a better term, uh, manufactured tree formations mm -hmm. that look like they, they had to have been done. So a stick structure? Yeah, it couldn't occur naturally. I have I have seen those, mm -hmm. but and I say that yeah, Bigfoot did this. No, right. you know I'm not able to say it unless you see right. it. You don't know, right? But uh, I don't know of the, those other phenomena he's talking about. Right, um, from Patrick Vaughn, one of our listeners, he asked, "What techniques do you employ to generate encounters?" We do a lot of different things. Uh, one thing that we will do and have had great success with is to walk as far back in as we can okay. and simply sit down mm -hmm. and be quiet. We have done that and built campfires. We've set up mock camps. We've employed infrared. We've employed uh, cameras. We've used black IR cameras. We have set out automatic recording units that will go for up to two months at a time. We've used thermal imaging devices, and I've had two pretty good results with those. Uh, you name it technologically, the group I belong to is involved in eDNA and drone reconnaissance. We've had actually uh, forward looking radio telemetry tags that have been deployed and been out in the field active for over a year at a time. And the uh, radius and pattern of the migration of animal, of moving animal, if it's no known, like a bear, you know, we can we can pretty well figure out a bear's radius, a bear's track, to, to, uh, what would you call it, terrain, mm -hmm. uh, same with cats, and this fits not. So was it on a Sasquatch? I have no idea. I didn't yeah. see it embed itself in Sasquatch fire, you see. But uh, pretty much we've done wood knocking and call blasting, and we've had some remarkable results with both of those techniques. But there again, we've had just its good results going off into the woods and being quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, I've noticed that this is a very interesting dynamic here. When men and women are together in the woods, we have had some of the better encounters. Uh, they seem to, these things seem to be drawn to the female books. Mm -hmm. you know, so. We're nurturers. We're, we're not, um, we're not aggressive. We don't, well, we're less of a threat for sure. Um, we're more likely to, we're less likely to attack or defend our territory than you guys would be. Um, we've, I've had a lot of, a lot of success with just female researchers or um, groups with females in them. I can imagine. That's definitely it. Um, so Michael Waldy <laughs> would like to know, are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, for anything. <laughs> especially from Michael Waldy though. Especially. <clears throat> okay. All right. Uh, so Marvin Lieber has mentioned before, uh, the first night that we talked, he said to be a friend of Michael Waldy, you have to be either especially weird or especially awesome. Um, and as we are both friends of Michael Waldy, I'm not sure which camp he falls into, but I, I think that I, I think I'm both. I think I'm equally both. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I probably lean a little more to the especially weird side. All right. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, whatever it is. It's true. Okay. Michael Waldy wants to know, have you ever been run out of an area? Run out of an area. Uh, mean scared no. out of an area. Like you, you had to leave that area you were researching. Mm -hmm. You could not stay. Yes, I have. All right. I most definitely have. I was with my uh, good friend and research partner, John, and we went to an old Freedman Cemetery one night in Florida, and we decided that we were going to walk a ways down in the 
right past the cemetery into the uncharted wilderness. And when we got down there, I noticed the deer skips through the cedar on the clear, and I thought that's awfully hard because mm-hmm. it could have stayed there, and we would have never known it. It didn't blow. It didn't do anything. It just there was. We rounded the corner, and the most uh, insanely demonic growls I had ever heard in my life came from the forest. Uh, prolonged, you know, and how the how, how this animal that produced these growls breathed, I don't know. And uh, John and I, there was another fellow with us, and John and I quickly concluded, you know, being sensible, intelligent men, we should probably, uh, A, stay and see what happened next, or B, run like little girls. <laughs> well, we chose C, and we left rather cautiously, and whatever it was followed us and did what we call now the smoky crab trick with John. And I know this sounds like woo factor, and maybe the two are not correlated at all, but uh, it sounded like a woman grab. So I don't know. know, Was that scary? Yeah. To me, it was scary because I'd expected more roars, more growls, Mm -hmm. not to be thought, not to hear a scar sound like a wounded rabbit, you know. Right. We're still scratching our heads over that. I probably wouldn't have stuck around either. I mean, when you're in that situation, it's about all you can do to, uh, to get out of there and, and not run and trigger a predatory instinct, but to get out safely and, uh, quickly without running. Um, we have another question from Rob Richmond. Um, have you had any, have you had any arguments with researchers claiming that self bioilluminating eyes about self-bioilluminating eyes. If primate, they are foveate animals like all primates, this biology works against itself. Have you ever seen self-illuminating eyes? Okay, I'm sorry. He was stating that he had had arguments with researchers about that. Have you ever seen Hmm. self-illuminating eyes? Well, I don't know that they were eyes at all. Mm -hmm. They they appeared to be self-illuminating, whatever they were. Uh, were they the eyes of a Sasquatch? I have no idea. I did not see the Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. I have seen that uh, with five other witnesses. And uh, it was quite an interesting sight and unnerving sight. Were, was it a Sasquatch? I mean, I, I don't know. No, I have no idea. Have I seen that phenomenon? Yes. Can I attribute it to Sasquatch? No. Not, right. you know, army. Right. All right. Well, that is all the questions I have. Um, I appreciate you so much for coming on. Uh, your your fount of knowledge. I I I already told Marvin this, so I it's probably gonna pump up his ego a little bit more. But um, you know, he he is a professor, so he is an academic type. But I will let y'all know that his chapter in the book, and I already told him no offense. But some professors come across a little bit academic and and stuffy. Um, He does not. As you have seen this entire interview, he's very personable, very knowledgeable, and and just a great person to talk to. He comes across that same way in the book. His chapter, um, it sucked me in and I could not put it down. You guys, so just go um, buy the book. It's so good. Um, his chapter, especially, I, I mean, I literally could not put it down until the very end. And then I went back and read it again so I could write even more notes on it. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate all the knowledge that you've shared, all the stories that you've shared. Thank you for elaborating on some things that are not even in the book. I do appreciate that. Um, and if you, uh, if you don't have anything else to add, I ask that you will vacate your chair and give it up to John Harrell so that I can interrogate him next. <laughs> I do have one final thing to add. Yes, sir. You know, the whole Nubby conference was canceled because of the coronavirus. Yes, sir. So I was going to uh, be there to give a presentation. Mm-hmm. And in between now and Colgate, I'll be at the Washita Bigfoot Festival in Inc., Arkansas, eight miles east of Mina, September 25th and 28th. Hosted by none other than Shelly Alton. I believe you and Shelly are acquainted. Are mm-hmm. you? Hello? I am, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Yes, I went to 
Yes. Yeah, I'll be there. Yes. Yeah, so um, <laughs> after after I talk to John, I have an event page that'll come up, and I was going to let them know the Washita Conference is coming on. Um, so Shelly, I went to one of her events earlier this year. Um, she puts on a great okay. event. So um, I will talk about your next event after that one. <laughs> Well, it's been it's been a blast, you know. I'm, I'm really uh, really blown away by the reception I've got since I kind of made my foray into the Bigfoot community. Everybody's uh, been very kind and just blown away by me. Like I said. Well, I, I'm glad that you've had that experience. I appreciate you coming on. Like I told you before, um, I think you accused me of selling ice cream to Inuits, but I was being completely honest when I said um, you're you're intelligent but humble and that is sometimes rare in the bigfoot community so um i very much appreciate you coming on the show and sharing that with everyone else thank you very much i'm going to vacate my chair <laughs> all right give me john Hello. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm going to kind of scoot over, let my Justin have some of the attention here, too. I understand completely. All right. <sighs> so I was going to talk to you guys real quick about the Boggy Bottom Conference and um, just kind of go over real quick the information, and then I will let y'all get back to your Sunday night. Um, so the conference is Saturday, November 7th, correct? Correct. All right. It's one day, uh, $10 per person. Kids get in, kids under four get in free. Yes. Yes. All right. So I'm going to go through the details and then I kind of want you to tell what it, what the uh, conference is for and what it benefits. So, um, so like I said, Saturday, November 7th, one day conference, one night, um, $10 per person, kids get in under four, kids under four get in for free. Uh, Lyle Blackburn will be there, Marvin Leeper will be speaking, Lyle will be speaking, I'm sorry. John Harrell will hopefully be speaking. Yes? It's a possibility. Uh, <laughs> you keep saying that, but I have a feeling you're going to get your arm twisted and you're going to be up there on the stage. Um, Jerry Heston will be speaking and Shelly Covington, Montana. Um, yeah. Yes. So vendors are welcome. The buy-in for the vendors is $40 each. Um, there will be concessions. And as for accommodations, the Highway Inn Express is available as well as the 43 Landing. Um, it's a camping, it's a primitive camping spot about eight miles or so from town. Um, and this will be held at the school, correct? Uh, yes, it'll be held at the uh, football field. At the football field, okay, good. Social distancing, right? So everyone knows they're gonna be safe. Um, I was yeah. going to ask, are masks required or no? Mm, no? Masks are not required, but they want everyone to be comfortable. They're more than welcome to wear them. Okay. All right. Masks are welcome, but not required. All right. And so um, if y'all just would uh, tell us what the Boggy Bottom Conference, Boggy Bottom Bigfoot Conference is for. What is the benefit for? Um, it's to benefit the uh, robotics program here at Colgate High School. Uh, we are starting a new robotics program for, for high school students, and this is a, the proceeds for this, from this conference will help uh, purchase material and, and uh, registration fees for competitions, things like that for, for these students. All right. So, um, like you said, it's a brand new program. Um, I mean... I know that if you're introducing a new program to the school, it must be pretty important. So this will go, like you said, towards equipment, uh, course materials, all of that. So it's for a good cause. Um, I mean, I think if we can all, you know, show up, um, uh, chip in a little. So just for those uh, tuning in, that's John Harrell and Justin Brown is, is in the background there. Um, so these two are putting on the Boggy Bottom Bigfoot Conference. And um, so November 7th, I recommend, you know, everyone take a trip down to Colgate, Oklahoma. 
Um, it's a beautiful area of Oklahoma and, um, there's a primitive camping ground, like I said, at 43 landing, about eight miles or so from town. So you can go, um, camp there, check it out, come into town for the conference, support a good cause, and then, um, go, go squatch, go Bigfoot while you're down there in that beautiful area of Oklahoma. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming on. And I have a flyer up, um, as soon as I get some more information i will put a different flyer up but for right now i have a flyer up um just advertising this event for you guys so um november 7th i i think it'll it'll be good to see you guys there so also uh, we're, mm -hmm. also there'll be a facebook page as well yes yes so. i was gonna add that in there so um have you redone the facebook page yet or is is it we just created a new event tonight Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So everyone, you can find the more event information about this event on Facebook, on that group. And it, is it under Boggy Bottom Bigfoot Conference? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Perfect. All right. Thank you guys for coming on to share that about the event. Like I said, I will keep advertising it on the show until November 7th. Okay. Well, sounds great. Thank All you. right. Thank you guys. Okay. So I'm going to switch over to um, this event page. I wanted everyone to know, um, I wanted everyone to know kind of the events that were coming up. I'm going to do this every show. I will have the upcoming events page. Um, first of all, we have the Washita Festival and Conference that will be uh, put on by Shelly Alston in Mena, Arkansas. Um, I mean, she puts on a good festival, a good event. Uh, lots of good people are going to be there showing up to support it. I think Keith Crabtree is going to go. Uh, lots of other uh, people have, you know, um, pledged their support for that. Also, we have the Boggy Creek Festival. That is put on by a paranormal group. Um, also in Falk, Arkansas, but on different dates. Then we have the Texas Bigfoot Conference, October 16th through 18th, 2020, and that is put on by Craig Woolheater. Um, so you guys can go check that out as well. Um, and then Halloween weekend. I wanted to talk about this real quick because I think that's a very popular weekend. So um, for those of you with kiddos, Halloween weekend is when you dress your kids up in a cute costume and take them around the block. Well, this year with COVID, that's not really an option for us. So... If you are east of the Mississippi, you have the option at this time to go to the LBL meet and greet. It is uh, going to be located in Land Between the Lakes, and that is Halloween weekend, October 30th through November 1st. If you are west of the Mississippi, you can come to the Falk Monster Halloween Bash at Smith Park. That's going to be put on by Keith Crabtree, Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio. That's right, yours truly. William Lunsford will be there and Squatch Dogs. So that's Ann Osborne Wells and uh, Kenny Walls. So um, they will all, will all be putting that event on um, for our event at Smith Park, uh, October 30th through November 1st, same date. We are going to have a Halloween costume contest for adults and for kids. We're going to have an option for the kids to go trick-or-treating around the campsite. Um, I know... I was sad this year for my own kids not to be able to go trick-or-treating. Um, it, you know, it, as a parent, it breaks your heart for them not to be able to grow up with the same customs that you grew up with. So um, bring your kid to Smith Park this year for the Falk Camp Out, and you can take them trick-or-treating from campsite to campsite. Um, again, all of these conferences that are listed I'm sure are subject to COVID issues. I think the Washita Bigfoot Conference is good to go. Um, she got clearance from the Arkansas um, Department of Health or, you know, whatever authority that is. I know that she listed it on that page. Um, so I think she's good to go. Uh, I assume the rest for all of these other conferences. So I wanted to just kind of touch on those real quick, uh, let you know what's coming up. The Boggy Bottom Bigfoot Conference, again, is in Colgate, Oklahoma on November 7th, 2020. So you guys start marking your calendars. And I wanted to uh, let everyone know that all of these that are listed, you can go to the Facebook page for each of these and get more information. There should be an event page. Um, for the LBL meet and greet, you'll need to join the Beast page in order to get information on that. 
um, if, if there's an update or cancellation or anything like that, you'll need to um, be a part of their group to get information on that. Same for the 2020 Falk Monster Halloween Bash. You'll need to join the Nightcaller's Bigfoot, I'm sorry, Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio Facebook group um, in order to get information on that. So um, like and subscribe my show if you don't mind and hit that notification bell so that you can get uh, live updates on when Nightcaller's will be available next. Um, go join the Facebook, the Nightcaller's Facebook group. So if you've had fun in chat tonight or you missed the chat, the Facebook group will basically be doing the same thing over in um, that we do in the chat tonight. I appreciate everybody for showing up for my first show or listening to the first show. And I hope that you'll continue to support me uh, throughout the rest of the shows that I have planned for you. And I have some great guests planned for you. So thank you everyone for coming tonight. And y'all have a great couple weeks.